0: Which one do I knock over? Oh, all right. Yep. I'll turn you on back here. Great, thank you. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the council. We're just about ready to get started here, and we're going to um, get the other camera going, and I'm going to pause this here and we are up good afternoon everyone this is charlie pacello on the council welcome to this uh, wonderful show we're going to have for you today uh i hope you're having a wonderful wonderful uh, day today Uh, i just do want to do a quick shout out announcement to our host our sponsor of the show which is remax alliance remax alliance if you want to buy a home in colorado you got to go to these guys i know them personally they're fantastic Amazing people. Go to www.homesincolorado.com. That's homesincolorado.com. And uh, they will help you to buy your dream home. They will help you to sell a home. Uh, Whatever you need to do, these are the people to go to. So go to REMAX Alliance. Again, that's www.homesincolorado.com. Today's topic is one of my favorites. Uh, We're going to be talking about theater and ritual in the ancient Greeks. And it's such an important uh, topic that I don't think uh, we've actually spent enough time on um, as a society because the ancient Greeks knew things that we just, we forgot. And they were able to bring communities together, their community together, in order to heal and to remember and to mourn and to reconnect. And we're going to have, my guest today is the preeminent expert in the field. But I wanna preface this conversation with an understanding of ritual and theater for you a little bit so you have a, a deeper understanding. See mankind, humankind has always had this need to express these innermost longings and desires and sufferings of his soul in a sacred space that's dislocated from the ordinariness of life. You now before our species was able to even formulate sounds into words and connect them to the symbols of speech, We had to ritualize and perform what was inside of us to communicate our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions and fears and dreams to another. And the process of ritualization became a nonverbal means of communication and connection that enabled our species to adapt, acclimate, survive, and ultimately thrive in these multitudinous environments our ancestors found themselves in. And rituals grew out of this display and performance of invoking the presence of God, or the gods, to work on our behalf for the benefit of the community at large. No one can accomplish anything who is not in alignment with the gods or God. Now theater grew out of the Dionysian fertility festivals. When Aeschylus broke from tradition and had one of the members of the chorus stand apart from the group and present a speech in his play, The Persians. This was like the Big Bang of theater. One tells a story while the other calls us to unite with the unseen. Both forms are calling us to connect in deeper, more meaningful ways. We have a fundamental need to understand the mystery of the incomprehensible cosmic order. We have a need To express the inexpressible within us, that only song, dance, music, play, and metaphor can accomplish or even come close to. And though many in the modern age have forgotten this, we have a need to make contact with the spiritual powers and forces which guide, nurture, hold, heal, and support our lives. So today we're going to examine both theater and ritual and identify their similarities, underscore their differences, and further discuss with my esteemed guest how they can be used to bring lasting healing by understanding the way in which the Greeks use theater. Now, one of the ways in which ritual, religion, and liberative action are alike is that they all construct alternative worlds. they nourishing themselves with imaginative visions. Both ritual and theater require the stepping into a liminal space and leaving the ordinary world behind. There's an inherent um, form in in both of these forms, there's an inherent form of performance. This is a characteristic of it. And the performers, whether they're actors, shamans, or even the more conservative priestly class are putting on a show. They are engaged in doing something for the audience. It is through their actions that the message is communicated. As Aristotle said in his Poetics, it is by their actions that we know what people are. In rituals, shamans and priests perform their actions to invoke the presence of gods or God for the observing audience. Actors perform a theater piece making the characters known by their actions they choose on the stage as the story unravels. It's done for the sake of the audience, to change, entertain, and reflect back to them an aspect of themselves and the society which needs attention or relief from tension, which is the case of many comedies. Now the performers in both ritual and theater are on display, a particular kind of display. The pretending and creating imaginary worlds and structures with specific actions are done and that's the doing part in order to evoke a particular response from the audience. That's the observing part. Both have a symbiotic relationship with the audience. One is dependent on the other in an interdependent unity moving toward a certain objectivity. Both are processes where commitment of the body is essential for the physical enactment of the performance. We are required to show what we are doing. And this can be done in a variety of ways, both in ritual and theater. Dancing, singing, the playing of drums, the playing of music, using a poetic and metaphorical language to evoke feelings of pity, fear, terror, joy, and exaltation are just a few examples. What must be stressed is the synchronic interaction of feeling, thought, and bodily movement in this concrete unity. The story and the ritual are communicated through a unification of these means of expression. Each one focused on their objectives to transform, enlighten, and entertain. But from this point, the two modes of performance begin to separate. In understanding the differences, let's first begin with theater. Now, theater has the qualities of ritual inherent within its structure, but it's closer to the entertainment side of the performance spectrum. As actors, uh, and I love acting. I've been acting for 15 over 15 years. We put ourselves in imaginary circumstances and live the truth of the lives of our characters. We lift the story onto the stage and give it its epicness. And what I mean by that is we become larger than life on the stage. Our characters become the representatives of these archetypal stories that are running through the fabric of society. We embody those experiences by intimately understanding The play, the conflicts within and between our characters, the human issues and behaviors driving why our characters do what they do, and breaking down what the play is attempting to solve or draw attention to. A diagnosis of character is involved, and it's paramount. We must grasp, as actors and actresses, the core motivation of our characters that propels the action forward. Understand what he wants, what his needs are, what he will do to get them met, and what stands in his way. We do all kinds of different ways to get into the body of our character, through improvisation, active analysis, dramatic exercises, to connect us to the rich lives of our characters. And rehearsals in an open space help to create the world in which the play inhabits. We expand our imaginations to unlock the secrets, mysteries, flaws, and strengths of our character. But nothing is more important than the action on stage actors act we learn about their characters as the play goes on if we have done our inner work and lived out the lives of our characters in our imagination to the greatest degree possible the acting on stage is given breadth depth and a subtlety of nuanced behavior that is so beautiful it is sublime less is more as the saying goes in theater circles And this is play done workfully, and it's a characteristic of all great performances as the behaviors, attitudes, motivations, and actions on stage appear natural and organic. And when this happens, a play comes alive. I mean, the emotions, they flow easily and effortlessly as the play moves through the actors, and the words that come out of their mouths are grounded in the truth of their circumstances. And these moments, however fleeting, because one performance is not like the other, and a major mistake actors do is they try to replicate what they did the night before. And that's, you can't do that. And you have to live in the moment. You have to be fully present in the truth of the circumstances in that moment. So when the spirit of the play moves through you, you and the audience break time and space. It's an amazing thing. You forget where you are. And it's actually a spiritual experience. And both the actors and the audience are transformed by it. Now, let us take a look at the qualities of ritual that separated from the theater. Rituals characteristically perform very serious and important work, but that's work done playfully with the marveling combination of serious pretense and pretended seriousness that belongs to children and is revived in adults in the ritual mode of performance. A sacred space is created to invoke the presence of the gods or the spirit of God. It is more of a command done with humility and grace. And there is a recognition by the people involved of the ritual of an emptiness. There's something lacking in their lives that the material world or the man of the machine has taken away. And people are seeking meaning, transcendence, and transformation. They recognize they cannot do it alone. And they must call upon these unseen powers to assist them and connect them back to their ancestors and the spiritual world. And this ritual is, is worked on playfully in a safe container that is kept away from all impurities. See, the profane is the allergy of the spirit. Everything in this space, the container of this cosmic order, is held sacred. And the, rituals, the ritual actions performed are designed to bring forth the invisible powers from the visible realm. Now there's a basic structure to ritual. It is invocational, dialogical, repetitive, and there is an opening and a closure. Just when you go to church, if you go to church or your synagogue or wherever you may go, just notice that all those processes, all, the, all of those structures, basic structure, is involved in all of them. And at the sweat lodges I used to attend, these were very the same steps that were followed. There's an invocation, blowing of the horns in the six directions. Each member of the lodge is encouraged to have dialogue with his ancestors in the stones are present with us to release our burdens and burn through our impurities. And it's a repetitive cycle as we go through these different doors, each representing different stages of the transforming experience. And we open and close the ceremony with ritual. The beginning with the horn, and at the end, the smoking of the peace pipe. And there's a recognition by all the assembled that we are putting what we do in the hands of God, or the gods. We're making... We make it possible for things to be done better because more than we are involved in getting it done. And there's this palpable, it's incredible, there's a palpable connection felt to all living and non-living things around you. The earth, the sky, the water, the air, and the people you share the sacred uh, lodge with. You feel purified and cleansed. Now the other two dominant characteristics of ritual are the aspects of of liminality and communitas. Now, when we enter that sacred space, we are crossing a threshold, a limen, and enter a place that is neither here nor there. And it's a space where infinite time and eternity converge. It's a state between conditions. It's a returning to the cosmic womb where a person comes and makes contact with the divine. And rituals serve as a rites of passage, from one stage of life to another and when done with intentionality and in in purity of the purpose can affect profound transformation in the individual. Now the other aspects, communitas, comes from the idea of community. It is through community that we find trust, connection and self-determination. And a true community begins in the hearts of the people involved. It is not a place of distraction but a place of being. It is not a place where you reform, but a place where you come home to. And finding a home is what people in community are trying to accomplish. And so this bond that is created in community transcends all categories and is something like the soul or essence of ritual. Now all boundaries and social structures are eliminated as we unite together through our common human bond without which no society could exist. We stand naked before one another, stripped of the worldly accoutrements, and see each other as one family, one brotherhood, and one sisterhood. While we experience this depth of love for one another, that only the liminality of God and the gods can do when done in ritual, the magic that can be created can be used beneficently for the transformation of society towards even greater justice, peace, and freedom. And this is what makes ritual so powerful and necessary in our modern times. And when we combine it with theater the way the Greeks did, we potentially can achieve catharsis, healing, and connection, vital ingredients to the returning health of our warriors and other trauma survivors. Now, today on the council, we're going to expand on this idea of combining theater and ritual and understanding how the Greeks did it. And we have a very, very special guest who is going to help take us even deeper into the profound impact that theater can have for the healing and transformation of our deepest wounds. Robert Emmett Maher is Professor of Humanities at Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts, with degrees from the University of Notre Dame, summa summa cum laude, and the University of Chicago. He has taught religious studies in theology at Indiana University and the University of Notre Dame. He also has held visiting chairs and professorships at numerous colleges and universities, including Trinity College in Dublin and Yale University. Robert is the author or translator of nearly two dozen books, including Heracles Gone Mad, Rethinking Heroism in an Age of Endless War. Welcome, Bob, to the show, thank you.
1: Thank you, Charlie. I'm glad to be
0: here. Uh, Bob, could you briefly share with the audience uh, your background and how you came to be as the light as the late Michael Joyce of the National Theatre of Great Britain and the Samuel Beckett Center cited you as the finest living translator of Greek drama. Well, that's a steep order. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure I deserve that that, that epithet,
1: but um, but I. Certainly, I was grateful to them for it. Um, I actually, there are two parts to it, I suppose. And one is the learning of Greek, and I, it, I was in my in my early adulthood. Uh, I was a um, member of a Catholic religious community, which involved taking uh, eight years of Greek and um, and uh, the same number of years in Latin. So. I, I acquired, uh, you know, proficiency in ancient Greek along the way. But actually, the bridge between that and translating Greek drama came much later. I was very interested in playwriting. And when I was in my late 20s, I was um, in Dublin at Trinity College as part of the Faculty of Divinity, But on the side, uh, and what was preoccupying me, was the writing of plays, uh, contemporary plays, uh, one of which was produced in Dublin during that time. So I was, at that point, a playwright who had no longer any particular interest in Greek. And um, then when I, during that year, I wrote a contemporary play, but one that was set in ancient Greece. And it was focused on the character of, of Alcibiades, who was a general during the same war in which Euripides fought. He w- And Socrates did as well. Um, a 30 years war that really defined Euripides' adulthood. Um, and But it was very much a, a parable on contemporary war making and so on. And the I, I didn't know who after I wrote that play to send it to but um, I had deep respect for the Greek filmmaker Michael Kakianis mm-hmm. and he is best known I suppose for being the, the director of Zorba the Greek but he actually was um, although he made six or seven feature films he was primarily focused on the directing of, of drama and also of opera throughout Europe and the United States, produced, I mean, directed many plays on Broadway. Um, So I sent it to him just out of the blue. Just, it was a cold call. I put the stamps on the envelope and sent that script off to him. And the response was he invited me to, to Athens to talk with him about the play. And when I was there, he was deep in the process of translating Euripides' Bacchae for theater, and um, he had a production coming up on Broadway of Euripides' Bacchae, and he was, uh, was in the process of translating it. And I looked over his shoulder one day, and I began uh, just reading part of it, of the Greek, and he said, oh, you know Greek? And, um, and he said, you really should try translating. Mm. And you should... He he thought that the combination of my love of and work in playwriting, plus the knowledge of Greek, would be would be perhaps a, a fruitful combination to pursue. And from that point on, um, I that's what I gave myself to. So I actually had to study um, ancient Greek culture and theater. Um, just as a way to understand what I was doing when I was trying to translate these plays. Mm. So I really looked backwards or retrofitted much of what became a a core part of my life, um, entering it through this early um, study of the Greek language and the later fascination and commitment to, to playwriting. So that's actually how it all got started
0: well, I, I just, uh, you know, we've met, we've known each other for a number of years, and uh, this play that you've written uh, is incredible, Her- or translated, Heracles Gone Mad. It's uh, one of the most uh, profound plays that I've ever read. It's, uh, I had no idea how much... the the relationship of what the veterans today are experiencing or have uh, veterans everywhere who have experienced, and that Euripides had it so down, he understood it so incredibly well, the inner turmoil that that veterans go through. And I just, um, I really think it's incredible and people need to know more about it. And I think most people don't realize, Bob, that many of the ancient Greek tragedy playwrights uh, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, uh, you know, they were, they were combat veterans. They were combat veterans, writing for combat veterans. And they had much to say about the folly and horror of war. And they lived it. And I imagine, uh, you know, most people don't realize that. Uh, they were not just morality plays. These were written for society that was saturated in violence and betrayal and they performed this to and enacted it in a sacred precinct the theater was a sacred precinct to achieve catharsis and healing where they found strength in each other uh, to heal their personal and collective wounds. Bob could you explain in greater detail since you've done so much uh, understanding the Greek culture and the Greek history uh, a, a greater detail about the relationships the Greeks understood between theater and war, and theater and healing.
1: Well, warfare was was clearly right at the center of the lives of every citizen during the 5th century, which was the century of Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, the great tragic playwrights of ancient Greece. Um, war was inevitable for them, and combat was inevitable for them, because the 5th century was, was, as our own century has been called, a time of endless war, mm-hmm. um, and every every citizen of Athens, unless they were handicapped and unable to serve, every citizen would enter the cadet corps, as it were, for two years at the age sixteen, and then for the rest of their lives until age sixty would be active duty military. We would call them; they could be called up at any time to to go into you know into combat. And in a time of endless war, that meant they pretty much their years were taken up. All of their adult years were taken up in um, you know in one war or another. And um, so up until the age of sixty, which was the age when Euripides wrote the play Heracles, um, was they were they were eligible and likely to be called up because. at Knew well was a war that took every resource, called upon every resource that Athens had um, had to to summon. But Aeschylus, for instance, the great mentor of Sophocles and Euripides, Aeschylus, for Aeschylus the warrior, uh, he fought at Marathon. His own brother was. The Persians invaded Greece. Um, his brother, when the and were fleeing to their boats, his brother tried to stop one of the escape boats, one of these skiffs, going out to the sh- to the to their ships. You um, know, he held on to the side of the of of the of the boat, and both hands were cut off. Oh wow and he bled to death in the Aegean Sea. Um, so, um, and Eskimo... Oh, death, no. he wrote his own epitaph, and his epitaph mentions nothing. It only mentions his career as a warrior and the
0: into the hearts of Persians. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so his...
1: His prowess and savagery as a warrior was the one was in, clearly when he looked back. It was a de- life in theater, and that's what he wanted recording on his recorded on his tombstone,
0: mm-hmm. and took part,
1: you know, in the. Um, Adventures and also was very active in, in politics. Mm-hmm. A playwright, um, for any citizen, base. first of all, before they were playwrights, they were citizens. And as citizens, they were, by definition, warriors. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and I think it's, uh, you know, because of that uh, connection, you know, of everybody was a warrior citizen. Everybody participated. I mean, every, every there was... There's no one that was not touched by it. There was no one that's not was not touched by war and then when they they would come back and they would have uh you know these wounds that they would carry and it's you know something that they had to find ways to be able to purge it and to get it out in a sense of community and the theater provided that for people so that uh you know because of the of the horrors and it was this was combat. That was hand to hand. This was this was personal. It was it was very very personal, and so it wasn't from a distance like what we have today, where you're you're shooting with these super technological weapons that can fire from you know, miles away and and, and destroy and, end and kill people. Um, but one of the, before we go too far into that, I want to go back to the uh, theater because it's uh, it's really important to understand that the Greeks. Um, you know, they, they, when, I, when I'm an actor and I'm performing, I love getting into the story. I love diving into it, uh, understanding the motivations and the, and the qualities of the character and all that. And, I, you know, in uh, these fictitious storylines, we find something that's really incredible. It's these deep, deep, deep truths, uh, the truths that are animating life. And there are some celebrities like, uh, like Johnny Depp, for instance, who think that we're masters of lying. And I think we're, I I beg to differ, I think we are more the curators of the soul because we're uncovering the truths that hide behind the facade of the civilized society, because we dig deep into what motivates a human being. Uh, Bob, how did the Greeks view the theater in regards to truth? Uh, Were they able to take, how were they able to take these mythic plots to deliver contemporary messages?
1: Well, the theater itself, I mean, the term theatron is a seeing place. It's a place of vision. And on the face of it, what they saw was a spectacle. I mean, it, of, of a, a combination, an art form that wasn't uh, that isn't directly parale- paralleled by any art form that we have. It was a fusion of the muses. It was a fusion of dance, of music and of of drama and of recitation, you know, of of enactment. And this was, I mean, the the choruses were sung by dancers who danced as they sang. The uh, many of the, so the choruses were, in fact, um, musical choruses that were sung. The actors in their large in the in their long speeches most likely sang those as what we would call arias, and some of the of the of the um, dialogue between two characters it's thought were were forms of um, you know of duets as they were as in opera. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was that aspect of, of spectacle, but it was a spectacle. That was governed by a story in which they saw themselves. Mythos, what the word from which we get the term myth, um, was simply the word they used for plot or plot line. Mm. And the mythos was something that myth. Myth was not something that happened once. Myth was something that always happened. It didn't refer to the past. It referred primarily to the present, the present which we can see reflected in the past but also that in the present the past in which we see ourselves and so these storylines were were not invented but the interpretation of them was in other words they um, they very often altered the story um, there was not one form of a myth there isn't one definitive or orthodox narrative for instance in the case of of Oedipus Rex one of the most You know, most widely produced Greek plays, we know that Oedipus blinds himself. But in the stories of Oedipus before that, from all we know, um, in drama, Sophocles was the first person to have Oedipus um, blind. It was, and also he was driven from Athens, uh, driven from Thebes, rather. Uh, in, in Sophocles' play, but not in earlier plays, he remained as a uh, as, as king of Thebes. So, what those who witnessed Sophocles' version of that plot, what they would have witnessed, it was something which which they were dealing with at the present moment. It's my uh, theory, interpretation, that what they were dealing with was the blinding of Pericles. Pericles suffered from the plague. He was their leader. Um, He, in a way, got them into all. Disaster upon his own people by some of the decisions he had made. And then he, then as a result of that, result of the, uh, of the events that he engineered, as it were, died, Pericles was one of those deaths. And in the plague, as Thucydides describes, the disease, the last, in the last stage, many victims of plague, which the, the city, and we can surmise this because of the time, mm-hmm. but shortly after Pericles' death, they were dealing with the loss of their leader, the tragic death. Of from plague, which so many of them not, had seen their their loved ones die from, and so it, it became an utter, um, interpretive play, a mirror in which they saw themselves grief with their terror. Now that the man who had guided them for decades was now, you know, was now now among them, mm-hmm. uh, no longer among them. Um, we have to think of, of, for instance, Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible. The Crucible is set in history, set at the time of the Salem witch trials, but it's very much a play produced in a society at a time when they were dealing with the McCarthy uh, purges. And so that, that play was not about Salem. Um, it was about the present and the crisis they were trying to deal with and how to address it. So that's the way that the, the plays, um, I think, served for the Greeks. It was a community. it was some, they came together the, um, in the theater of Athens. It's not known whether any women were allowed to be present. Uh, the play was performed inclu- exclusively by men and by citizens. And the, uh, the audience, it's thought by some, was made up of. of of Athenian citizens who would have been warriors, but also arranged in the, in the audience, in the theater, uh, according to their military uh, units or tribes. Um, so they sat there, a community that had gone to war and now had come back to war and, was, and, and they were witnessing what they had been through and working through it uh, in a story in which they could see themselves.
0: Mm. And that's, and
1: that's nowhere more true than in, than, than in the Heracles. I mean, it's transparent to that.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, and we're going to get to that here in just a moment. Uh, it's, it's clearly there's no more transparent character than I've read that uh, exemplifies what, uh, what it's like to come back from war. Those these endless wars uh, and what it does to a human being. Um, just a real quick announcement for <clears throat> station identification. You are listening to this incredible conversation on uh, KUHSDenver.com. That's KUHSDenver.com. We are broadcasting not only in Colorado, but all across the nation and all across the world. Uh, thank you for tuning in to all the programs that this station offers and uh, for tuning into this show. Uh, we wouldn't be here without you. Our numbers continue to rise, and I just want to thank each and every one of you, for tuning in. Um, Why did, uh, Bob, why did Euripides choose Heracles? He's one of these great heroes of ancient Greece. He was the most beloved, admired, uh, and revered by the people. You know, how can can modern-day warriors and society understand uh, the connection between a mythic hero and his sufferings, and related to their own injuries from war. Well, Euripides wasn't the
1: only one to see Heracles and his labors. Heracles is known mostly as a hero, as the greatest of the Greek heroes, and what made him famous were his labors. Now if we were to just say today group of men and women, is that is the title it's to it's to our to our veterans to our soldiers, um, and so the I don't think it was any different. We're not only by by Euripides in Heracles, but also he was very, he was seen as a grunt, as a warrior, as a war hero. Um, in in another place. Fronts the character of Heracles and, um, and sums up his life in these words. He said, You've put your finger on it, my labor, the story of my life. My road is uphill, steep, to do battle, every son down to the last. Mm-hmm. So, as the wife of Heracles complaining in these words, And she says, ever since I've been with Heracles, sharing his bed, standing with him, all I seem to have done is nurse terror from him. One night is fear, the next drives that fear out, with new fear. We had children, of course. He sees them the way a farmer sees his back fields. He drops a seed and comes around once in a while to check the harvest. All right, that was his life. I mean, what what spouse, what woman of a warrior could not identify with those, those words? It's absolutely unmistakable that, that Heracles, the hero, who is said to have brought civilization to the world and tamed it to bring make peace possible for those who, who don't have to go out and labor for it, that peace in the home front, is at the expense of terror and war, you know, in the in the in the war zones. I mean, it it just it cries out, you know, that these are not contemporary plays. I mean, I mean, these are not ancient myths. These are present realities. This is a this play is not, you know, a peering down a distant well and indulging in ancient truths. It's a mirror. Yeah. It's. It's just Athenians looking at, at themselves in the, mir- in, in the mirror. And I think this was inevitable um, for, for Euripides. Remember, he wrote this play, and most likely when he was age 60. Mm-hmm. And what that meant was that ever since he was 16 years of age, he had been in the military. Um, at the age of 60, he was allowed to retire and he would no longer know war or combat firsthand. What does someone who has spent their entire adult life in the military and largely at war, what does he think when he finally, at his retirement ceremony, as it were, from the military? Um, so, I mean, that clearly had to have been on his mind. But there's another aspect to this, and that is that in the in the year um, 423, which was uh, coinciding with Euripides' retirement from the military, his own final coming home from war, the long war that had consumed Athens and consumed the Greek world, the Peloponnesian War, had finally, after ten years of incessant of, of warfare, they had come to a truce. The warring sides had come to a truce. It was called the Peace of Nicias. Nicias was an was an old general. Uh, we would think of a World War II veteran who had served as a young man in World War One and then become a major general in 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 World War Two, and that now was being called upon uh, in the in the latest trial in the Peloponnesian War. But aided war and did everything he could to. To um, to bring war, you know, bring Athens to a time of peace, and uh, so Nicias negotiated this truce. It looked like it might stand. Look, it might hold. And so the troops, at, men of Athens, the citizen, the warrior citizens of Athens, were recalled. And for the first time in their life, they could think they were coming home for good, and they could go back to their fields, back to their fit, back to their families. And so, like Heracles, I mean, like Euripides, rather, they 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 were enjoying the prospect of peace. Mm-hmm. Um, but how were they coming home? What does it mean to come home from years of years of war? For, in Euripides' case, a lifetime of war. What is that homecoming like? And who is coming? Like, who is coming home? What are the warriors like? Is it and and. Um, many, as you know, many of our veterans, especially in recent wars, because they've been more vocal, um, have said that the hell that they knew as war and the challenge, the struggle, uh, the pain can't compare with the, with the, um, the pain, the struggle, the challenge of coming home, uh. Dealing with uh, with the demons that come home with you, mm-hmm. and, and the memories and the and so on, so that that's that's what the war I think is. I mean, that's what the play is really about is the experience of veterans. And unlike most of Euripides' plays, it's focused pretty much exclusively on men. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a practically an all male cast. Um, there's only one female character in the play. Euripides, for the most part focused in his plays on young teenage girls and, and, and older women. Um, near, nearly every one of his plays that is named after a person is named after a woman, but not this play. This is focused on his comrades, on his fellow warriors mm-hmm. and their homecoming.
0: Well, and I think that's uh, such an important thing. You know, if people don't realize that when, uh, when, when veterans or people come back from the horrors and the trials and tragedies of war, the war doesn't leave them. It doesn't just dissipate. It's not gone. It's not like they're, you know, there's a, a term called the peace of hell. Uh, you know, peace for veterans, as James Hillman writes, is uh, is not an absence of war, but it's a living ghost in the bedroom at the lunch counter on the highway the return from the killing field is more than a debriefing it is a slow ascent from hell and this piece of hell that so many people that so many veterans come because they they've, they've been changed by their experience they have no longer able to make that connection and we don't have the things in place really truly to be able we just want to give them a job we just want to give them placement we give them a little debriefing you send them out and yet the families are the ones that have to carry that what are you know those horrors those nightmares those flashbacks which is a big part of the play is this concept of of, of blacking out of going into that flashback of getting lost into those those memories but before we go into the play can we just talk briefly bob about War and healing. Uh, the you know this is so important about uh, Greek theater is these concepts of miasma, which is this pollution that follows a warrior and, and contaminates not only himself but his family, his his community, his society, and the antidote that the Greeks found, which was catharsis, and why the Greeks were so concerned about that and being able to reconstruct these warrior stories through these plays. Uh, in helping them to give remembrance and mourning and reconnection for the wounded to be reintegrated back into the society um, and, and becoming a citizen once again. R- what was the, the, the quality about those things that is so important for people to understand?
1: Well, pra- practically every society that we know of from the oldest from oldest antiquities around the world to the present, Uh, practically every society has had rituals of purification and healing for, for warriors returning from, 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 from war, from battle. Our society doesn't, but the Greeks did. And it's, it's the contention of some that actually the um, theater in Greece was developed in the, in the fifth century as a way for a citizenry, a citizenry that was comprised, uh, because women were not citizens in Athens, um, only, only those men who had uh, two, who descended from two male Athenian citizens, namely their father and their wife's father because they traced their lineage only through the male line only they were males were, were citizens of Athens and they comprised the 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 Athenian military so this was um, this ritual was uh, um, you know was uh, it's thought that 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 Greek drama to which it's it's perhaps true that only Athenian citizens, all male would be allowed to attend and perhaps some from other you know, visitors and, and so on but that they would see in, they would share their, share a story and see their own stories in it. I've taken I've learned a lot from working with many veterans but also with Jonathan Shea who has written extensively uh, for veterans on the healing of, of, of battle trauma of war trauma and the term that he uses is um is communalization that veterans heal other veterans that that's where the healing comes from one another and in the sharing of their stories and all of the emotions the affirmation the mourning the grief and um and the fellowship that Comes out when those stories are shared. I mean, it doesn't come from pharmaceuticals, from drugs, mm. or from other, um, but it comes from from storytelling and communal storytelling. What he calls communalization, um, and I think what took place in the Athenian theater was was communalization, um, was the sharing of stories. Witnessing of all of one's stories as it were being collected, being gathered in one vision, in which they could all um,
0: re-enter and emerge from um, their own their own
1: hellish experiences, as well as the love and the uh, in, in the in the Heracles it says that that war made Heracles. In war, he discovered his humanity, but he also was turned monstrous. Um, and so there, there's this tension that, that that war brings out the very best and can bring out the very the very worst and the most painful in humanity. And both of those are found, are experienced, are witnessed, are shared in, in Greek theater. And as, have, as you pointed out, um, you know, in your opening, Charlie... Um, the theater was it was a sacred place. It was a place sacred to Dionysus. It was a sacred precinct. It next to the theater was a in the same precinct was a temple, and that the plays were um, the plays were performed primarily for the god Dionysus. It was he who was the object of entertainment. I mean, he these were gifts to the god. The god was present in his in his idol or his figure that was carried in procession on, into the theater space, into the orchestra, and placed there. So he was the 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 audience of honor, as it were. The and 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 the, his healing power, Dionysus's healing power, was um, was there. I, the once in. Um, a number of years ago, I was appointed as a commissioner for the first, um, at Riverside Theater, it took place, the first um, uh, Conscience in War, um, what was it called? The Truth Commission on Conscience in War. And it took place at the Riverside Theater, Riverside Church, rather, in New York City, uh, where Martin Luther King had spoken. It was the place where, where a number of... of of um, shaping figures in the 20th century, set forth their challenges, um, addressing the the evils and the struggles of our time. And there, a number of veterans went up on the altar uh, in the sanctuary and told their stories. The fact that it took place there, rather than in a um, you know in a in a contemporary secular theater. Or in a, a space that would otherwise be um, used for a rock concert or, a, or or a lecture hall, the fact that it took place there um, gave it, I think, a kind of a special ritual power. And I think the theater was 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 like that. The god was present. The god of transformation was present. This was a place a place of prayer and a place of of offering. And um, and these stories were shared, were shared there, and so I think that 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 was and catharsis. All that catharsis means is purification or healing, mm-hmm. and and veterans in telling, sharing their stories, experiencing affirmation and love and understanding from one another. I think that is is experienced today as a catharsis and healing, and as as a sacred ritual. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and it's, it's, you know, that sense of communalization that we're talking about, what Jonathan Shea was talking about, is so important. And the alienation and isolation that so many veterans feel after they come back in or come back. And this, these things can last. It's not just when they come back and they and you just get over it. Some can, a lot of them can't. And these things can go on for decades. And a lot of the suicides that are going on right now that are happening, uh, was a great majority or a great uh, amount of them are Vietnam veterans, and so you know, these things are carried forth for, for generations or for decades. Excuse me. Uh, and if they're not tended to, it can lead to that you know horrible outcome. And so if we can reintroduce some of these principles and get back to sharing these uh, stories again in meaningful ways, where people can re-identify and see that mirror inside of them, and being able to communalize their grief together and reconnect in bonds of love, you know, that, that, that there's, this, there's a bond of love that happens for veterans, that because these people have put their line out uh, their life on the line for you that, uh, you know, it's, it's an unparalleled kind of love because they're willing to sacrifice themselves for you and, the, and yeah. vice versa
1: Well, in this play in Heracles, the opening chorus, the entrance of the chorus is an entrance of of combat veterans, of men who talk about holding each other up, lifting the other in battle. These were the these were the veterans of of the um, battles of Plataea and Marathon, the battles in the Great Persian Wars, in which in which Athens made the world safe, as it were, for democracy. This was their their great wars, and throughout the play, the the primary focus is friendship, friendship between men, friendship between warriors, and and um, and and the you know the very last lines of the play said anyone that are the chorus saying that anyone who would who would prefer wealth or power or anything to the love of friends is mad is out of his mind with madness mm-hmm. um, that this is. Um, so friendship, which is simply the bond of love, um, that is is um, is the central theme. Um, it runs, it stitches every line, as it were, every moment of the play together. After all, Herac- in, when Heracles enters, where is he coming from in the play? He's coming from hell, and hell is not Hades. Um, hell. Is what he has just, where he has just been, and what he what he was delayed because he was trying to rescue his friend Theseus from that hell. So his family needed him; his family desperately needed him. But he stayed work first with his friend Her- Theseus and made sure that he lifted Theseus out of hell and carried him out at great peril. I mean the. So that his and and at the very end, when Heracles collapses, having been completely destroyed and undone, and and covers his head with his robes and said, you know that he he longs only for death, and that no one should remove his robes or look look at him, because he is an object of shame, uh, an object of loathing, and he says, I'm polluted by my by what I have done. And Theseus, the man whom he lifted out of hell, now comes comes back to him. And as his friends says, with friends there is no such thing as pollution. Um, you know, let me lift you to your feet. If you can't walk, I'll lift you. If you can't walk, I'll carry you. And and the two of them, um, he 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 saves the man he saved from hell. He saves that man. Uh, now carries him, and so this is this is the this is the the, the bond of brothers, the bond of 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 lawyers that is the great love that is is that so many veterans speak of um, that they that the the love of family and even the love of their spouses very often doesn't come close to the bond that has been created between between those who have shared war together. And this play is just, uh, you know, is eloquent with respect with respect to that.
0: Absolutely.
1: They save one another.
0: Yeah, and it, it absolutely does. It, uh, that sense of, of when you're at your lowest and, you, and you're in that moment of darkness and despair and that friend comes over and reaches their hand and says, I'm going to carry this with you. Come up, you're, you're, we're together. You, your pollution is not going to infect me. We, I walk with you, and I'm not going to let you down, and I'm going to be there for you. And that's a yeah. sense of, that's a, a profound uh, love that many people uh, don't quite understand uh, and uh, can only witness it on the stage. Could you briefly, Bob, say uh, talk about the play, just a little bit about uh, the plot and, and the organization of it and why it was considered Euripides as dark as play, and some of the themes that, were, um, that Euripides was trying to highlight.
1: Sure. Um, I just want to add one thing for a moment, sure. uh, Charlie, if I can. Just imagine the healing power of ten or 11,000 warriors sitting in close proximity to one another, their, their bodies pressing against one another, and experiencing that together, it's not just one or two or a handful of veterans at a at, at a um, at a vet center and so on. It's ten or eleven thousand veterans who have experienced the same pain. Experienced, they have they, shared something, and now they they see the commonality, the community the, of of pain and suffering, and and they're surrounded by those whom with whom they went into battle. And so when these stories are told and they begin to weep, they begin to break down, they, there are veterans all around them to put their arms around them and hold them and, and support them and affirm them. I mean, it's not, it's not just a handful. It's, it's literally tens of thousands. Um, but Charlie, going now to your um, to your question, the plot of the Heracles is that Heracles is clearly coming back from war, Um and he's coming back to a crisis within his own family. His his is a royal family, and in his absence, his wife and father and children have all been put in immediate peril because there is a usurper um, who, through violence, has seized Heracles' kingdom and is threatening to as. Well, not just threatening. He's preparing to slay Heracles' father and wife and children. In other words, every remaining member of Heracles' family, so that there will be so that his seizure of the kingdom of the kingship will be complete and without without future threat. Mm-hmm. So Heracles comes back in the nick of time, um, and um, and rushes into. His own palace, which is now uh, in which this slaughter is being prepared, and uh, and, res- and slays the usurper and his men, um, and saves his family. So he he returns from war only to engage in another battle in his own house, um, and um, and he saves. He becomes now. A local hero, as well as a, you know, as a as a national hero, as it well, as it were, he comes back and and easily you know slays as a superhero, as it were, uh, his saves his family and slays all of the um, of the threats to them. After that, because his house now is a place of blood and there's fresh blood on his hands, having slayed. Uh, the Lycus and his the other henchmen um, having slain them, he has to go undergo a ritual of purification. And ironically the ritual of purification involves the slaying of a ritual animal, the slaying of a of a calf. so they have to he has to slit the throat of a of this animal in ritual sacrifice, ritual animal sacrifice to purify the house and purify himself from the war he's been in and from the recent bloodshed that he has enacted. Um, when the family is gathered around him, his, his wife, his children, the servants, when all and, and his father are gathered around for that purification ceremony, and he takes the blade and splits the throat, and the blood spurts out from the from the ritual animal sacrifice those around him see something that terrifies them, his eyes begin rolling back in their sockets and he begins ranting um, and what uh, in short what he clearly undergoes there is a flashback mm-hmm. in which he's back in battle um, with his foes and uh, and as he looks around, he sees his his children and his wife as um, uh, as those enemies. You know, he he projects onto them the uh, in a kind of psychotic misidentification. He projects onto them the his his um, and his enemies. Mm-hmm whom he then sets out to slay, and so he stalks and hunts his own children in the house and cuts them down in front of him. They they plead with him, and his wife pleads with him uh, and tries to break the spell that he's under, uh, saying, "You know, I'm your wife. If I'm your ch- we are your children. I'm your son." And and the father um, Heracles slays them, and then and then just collapses, goes into a kind of of coma. Um, and in that coma his father and others the two Heracles' children and wife have been killed but the father he didn't get to the father yet and um and so they tie him down so that when he awakes he won't be dangerous but when he awakes he's he doesn't know what has happened he's not aware of what he's done he smells the blood he sees the blood on himself and he asks his father what you know what what has happened here what what does this all mean the father tells him you know you have um you know you have done something awful and um unspeakable and the father explains it must be all the killing you've been doing you know in war you know how because Heracles says how could i have done this and the father says it must have it must it must be all the killing you've 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 done you know in warp and, and so on so um at that point heracles becomes suicidal he becomes hysterical he you know he throws himself on the ground covers himself and just wants to die and at this point the father is is helpless he can't he can't um, summon his son from this this uh, despair and death wish and it's only Theseus who comes in the last minute, who has known who knows what these what Heracles is going through. He went through it himself, and Heracles brought him out of it. So he says, I'm here. I'm your friend. You know, we've been here. I'm gonna help I'm gonna help you out of here. And Heracles tries to drive him off and so they just want to die. And Theseus taunts him, his friend taunts him and says, This isn't a hero speaking. Where is all the Where's the hero I knew? Where's the you know the valiant uh, warrior? And he said, and Heracles says, all my labors compa- uh, f- you know fade, all my labors pale. Nothing compares in what I to what uh, I am exp- you know what I, I the courage I have to summon now just to live. I need the courage to live, and um, it's a courage. That it's much harder to summon than any of the courage I had to summon men in battle so Theseus understands that and he 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 lifts him and said you know I'm your friend I will I will be your courage and your strength and, and I will be your legs for now just put your arm around me and I will lift you I mean, this it's it's veterans healing veterans uh, those who have that bond of love that was forged in battle now finding in that bond, in that love, what will enable them to go on and, and affirm life. And um, so that, I mean, it's so utterly, utterly transparent to the experience of veterans today, or veterans any time. What comes through in the play is that war is um, is always, I mean, there's the commonality of war is timeless in that sense. It's a myth. It's not what was once true. It's what is always true.
0: When I think that, uh, my gosh, it's uh, so powerful, uh, and it's very relative. It's not something that it's it's it's. Those stories happen, unfortunately, in our society today. There was an incident at Fort Bragg uh, uh, where. Some uh, veterans came back and and this actually happened. And so th- these are real issues that uh, that that veterans experience. and it's in this communalization and understanding that helps to bring these things to the light. Once we make conscious what is unconscious, we are able to clear that, to bring to bring that to the forefront and we help each other like you said veterans healing veterans those who get it understanding what it is that you went through so that you can stand and affirm life affirm the life you've been given and firm and honor the people and carry those wounds with 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 dignity and we all carry them together and when we were able to, to do these kinds of plays and, and my gosh, when you were saying that the people listened to it in front of twelve thousand people, or how many people that were there, listen! My gosh, the power in that is incredible. And I, I you know, we only have oh my gosh, Bob. I can't believe we're only we're, we're running. We're actually over time. Uh, Went by so fast. <clears throat> I can't believe it. Let me do a quick, real quick announcement, and then we'll do. We'll hit the last couple questions, um, just real quick, Bob uh we are broadcasting uh this incredible show and this incredible conversation with bob maher uh, who's written this play heracles gone mad heracles gone mad to all my stella adler alumni and uh, friends and people out there this is the play we need to produce Uh, we need to find a way to get the money to make this happen and to be able to take this play and bring it all around the country to all of the places where veterans uh, and their families and other people who have been touched by war need to watch this play and bring it and communalize it and actually give healing to the people who need it. So help out if you can, if, you, if you're if you passionate about it like I am, please let's bring make this happen. Um, we are hearing this story of this incredible conversation on KUHSDenver.com. It's KUHSDenver.com, broadcasting the best music and programs all around this this country, this this state, and all around the world. Um, we're touching hearts in every continent, uh, and I'm just—it's an honor to uh, to be here, Bob. Uh, I can't believe we're, we're already—you done. Uh, you know—what is it that you find? is the most important thing for veterans to get from this play. And lastly, uh, what, what do we need to get this play produced? And, and then lastly, if there's one bit of advice, uh, one bit of wisdom from your life experience that you could pass on uh, to the listeners that are listening in right now, what would it be?
1: There were several questions here, Charlie. I know, um, I
0: was trying to condense all yeah, of <laughs> As briefly um, as you can, Bob. I'm sorry. To what miss is...
1: What is? I think the um, what should veterans or what might veterans take from this play? I think hope. Yeah. Um, one of my heroes, uh, coming from Chicago, being raised in Chicago, is Studs Terkel, who also made his his life on radio and radio interviews, and in a play, in a book that. He, a book that he wrote, I think he was around 90 years of age when he wrote the book Hope Dies Last. Um, and, um, and the hope is that it just doesn't die. In other words, that, that when we lose hope, we've lost everything. Mm-hmm. So I think one thing that this play is, uh, uh, that anyone should take from the play is hope and also where to turn for hope. And that is in each other, in friendship, in love, in community. So that's what I would, um, you know, w- what I would say is, in some ways, the message uh, to be to be drawn from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to have to remind me, I guess. of oh, the other, what does, what would it take to to um, get
0: it produced? We got to get this player produced. Produce, well, yeah, we have to. Yes, find we a do. Way. Yes,
1: we do. I had, and I um, more people like you, more shows like you, Charlie, more actors like you, because when you when you performed scenes of it, um, scenes from it, it was just it was so moving. Um, your portrayal of Heracles was it was just perfect, and I think that that um, so it's it, the torch is passed. It's in your hands. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, uh, and, and, thank you. And, and and to all those who are. You know the, you're listening. This is, um, I think, it's a play that that can bring understanding and healing, and and um, that's why it was written. Um, and and it hasn't lost any of its power. I mean, when I first started translating plays, people said, "Well, how how do you how do you um, infuse life back into into Greek drama uh, as if Greek drama is dead, uh, as if it's an artifact, as if it's a fossil, and has to be um, has to be instilled somehow, infused with a power that is lost. Uh, my experience of, of, of translating Greek drama, and I've also directed a number of plays um, of Greek drama, Greek tragedies here and in Ireland. Um, my experience is it's it's more like discovering Euripides or discovering Greek tragedy is more like um, digging down, drilling in a place where one shouldn't drill because there's a power line there. The, you know, there are always warnings before you dig below below a foot or two into the soil to find out whether you're going to strike a power line. And when you, when you go down into Greek drama, it seems to me, and understand it, especially a play like Uh, uh, euripides it it it, the power comes from it Mm -hmm. and it 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 electrifies you and the audience Um, and that's we don't have to revive it uh to resuscitate it it revives and resuscitated resuscitates us there's that much power there Mm -hmm. and and vision
0: and then, lastly, Bob, really quick, uh, what bit, one bit of advice, uh, one bit of wisdom from your life, what would it be that you could give to the <laughs> audience today? Just one, real quick. <laughs> I know it's a big well, I, question, I, right, I, <laughs> uh, I think
1: I, I think I'm going to borrow that wisdom and simply, um, um, simply. Recite Euripides. Any man who would prefer great wealth or power to love the love of friends is sick to the core of his soul. Let's be kind and spread friendship to each other.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Bob, thank you so much. Uh, this has been Thank been you, fantastic. Charlie. It's a real privilege. Uh, I can't believe. I, w- I wish we could keep talking about this. <coughs> <laughs> and, uh, we could go on and on, but I... I Uh, Yes, we could. We have to go. Yes.
1: Well, produce the play, and then we'll we'll have a conversation after after the performance.
0: That'd be fantastic, Bob. That'd be absolutely (laughs) fantastic. So, uh, thank you so much, Uh, folks. We are over time. I just wanted to thank all of you again for tuning into the council. Uh, We are dedicated to you to, to bring you the best possible shows out there and and the best guests and. To help bring enlightenment, understanding, healing, wisdom, and tapping and helping us to connect what's really important in our lives. And that's each other. And bringing that kindness and that love of connection. And helping everybody come home who's, who's suffered from war. And anybody who's trauma survivors. To, uh, to regain and reclaim the life you were always meant to live. Thank you folks so much for tuning into the council today. Uh, the council is adjourned. May you all be well. May you all be free of pain and suffering. May you all be whole. We'll be back in two weeks. Thank you folks very much. God bless. See you soon. And now on the international camera, we are just about done here, getting ready to go. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's show. It has been an honor and a privilege, as always, to speak to you. Uh, thank you for taking time out of your lives to, uh, to listen to this. I know what it means. And I, I, I promise to try to give you the best I possibly can each and every time. Thank you, folks. Uh, tune into the council in two weeks. We'll have another fantastic show. Thank you.